This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, and in this episode, I speak with Peter Block. Peter Block is an author, consultant, and resident of Cincinnati, Ohio, whose work focuses upon chosen accountability and the reconciliation of community. He's the author of several best-selling books, including Flawless Consulting, The Guide to Getting Your Expertise Used, Stewardship, Choosing Service Over Self-Interest, The Empowered Manager, Positive Political Skills at Work, and a book called The Answer to How is Yes, Acting on What Matters. He's also the co-author of Applying Philosophic Insight to the Real World with Peter Kestenbaum, and a book called The Abundant Community, Awakening the Power of Families and Neighborhoods with John McKnight. His books address ways to create workplaces and communities that work for all to bring change into the world through consent and connectedness rather than through mandate and force. It sounds true, Peter Block is the author of the audio learning series, The Right Use of Power, How Stewardship Replaces Leadership, an audio program exploring a business model where community ownership redefines success. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Peter and I spoke about how to claim our freedom in the workplace. We also talked about the dangers of focusing on speed and scalability in business. We talked about stewardship and how it differs from traditional notions of leadership and what the true role of the boss is. Finally, we talked about the importance of asking meaningful questions and what questions Peter has found particularly useful in organizational life. Here's my conversation with a true maverick and someone who turns the conversation about business upside down, Peter Block. Peter, in my 28 years of Running Sounds True, you are one of a small handful, very small handful, of business writers, you could say business philosophers, whose work has really influenced me. I've really found a lot of value in your writing. So I want to begin by thanking you for that. And occasionally, when I talk to people about your work, the criticism that I hear is, oh, you know, this guy's so idealistic. Come on, Tammy, really? And I know that in your writing, you actually defend idealism and talk about how we need to reawaken idealism. So I thought this would be a good place for our conversation to begin. How can you defend idealism? Well, when you defend idealism, you defend imagination. You defend possibility. You defend the world of ideas. 
Uh, the argument against idealism is, is the wish to be practical, uh, the wish for an evidence-based world, the wish for proof. Idealism affirms the place of mystery and not knowing and uh, caring about things that are unmeasurable. So I always see the argument against idealism as the argument against democracy, the argument against love, the argument against uh, justice and equity and all the things that our culture is, has abandoned in the name of privatization and, and uh, kind of economic well-being. So when somebody accuses me of being idealistic, I just say thank you. I, I'm, I was afraid for a while that I was getting too practical. But yet, obviously, Peter, we have a need to have our ideas hit the ground, make sense, generate results. I mean, yes, aren't you interested in those things as well? I mean, you're writing about business, which is a, a world where results are very important. Uh, I am moderately interested in results, but if, if you want results, you'll keep doing the same thing over and over again. And so I'm interested in the edge. I'm interested in, in life and the margins. I'm, I'm, I find most useful uh, saying what would it take to create a future distinct from the past. And in some ways, it's kind of mainstream because everybody loves creative destruction. Everybody's interested in disruptive technologies. And so I don't think we're in any danger of forgetting about the need to be practical, but I would rather use the notion of, of, of how do we embody a set of ideas? How do we bring them to life? How do we give them form and shape? I'm very interested in structure. I'm very interested in shape. It's just that the conversation about results orientation, I know doesn't produce results. When people say they're results-minded, I know that they just want to recreate the past. And underneath it all, they're kind of bored. So that language of a tough guy, adolescent, you know, zero defects, failure is not an option. We're results-oriented. You know, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Evidence-based medicine, evidence-based education. All that language doesn't take us anywhere. Okay, but what about somebody who says, you know, look, earlier in my life, I was quite idealistic. Maybe, let's just use this as an example, idealistic about the kind of business I could create and the way people would treat each other and the type of communication and community that could exist. And, you know, I've been trying for so long. And, you know, at this point, I don't feel so idealistic anymore. I feel resigned to that. Maybe this is as good as it's going to get. I've tried really hard, and I'm sick of being continually disappointed. Then I would uh, make that a conversation of faith. I would say if if you're feeling defeated and disappointed, that's a conversation with God. It's not a conversation with the accounting department. It's not, a, it's, it's not for you to say, I only want to take on those things I know I can achieve. It's too small, too small a thing to worship. And my heart goes out to that belief. I, in some ways, identify with it. You know, I've tried so many things in the community world that haven't worked. And I think, what's, what's the matter with me? Why have I failed? And then uh, you just can't act on that. You just have to feel it. But to say that, 
the world is, and then however you finish that sentence, well, you're making that up. There's no world out there. It's all narrative. It's all fiction. It's all a story we create to try to make sense of our experience. So somebody who says, I've tried idealism, I've lost it, and I'm feeling defeated or exhausted. Well, you're trying to make sense out of your experience. That way of making sense out of it is one way, but it's not true. It's just a way. And uh, I, I want to support them in their suffering. Well, tell me more when you say that's a question of faith. So for in your own life, here you are, you're talking about the kinds of changes you want to see in community life and a level of disappointment in what's been accomplished so far. What kind of faith is it that you have such that you keep going? Well, uh, one, I I need to accept my limitations. So I work at that. And uh, my major limitations is the belief that anything is possible and that uh, I can handle anything. So I kind of live my life with the notion of I can handle anything. And that's been the source of most of my failures. So I have to come to terms with that and and, uh, change that. Say, well, I can't handle anything. How to become more discerning or smarter about what what I attempt and what I care about. Now, whether my life has meant anything or whether the work has produced enough results, to me, that's a question of faith. I don't know that there's evidence. I don't believe in scale. I don't believe in speed. A quantitative measure of our lives, to me, is unsatisfying. So no matter how big your business is, there's bigger ones. Uh, No matter how successful you've been, there's things you haven't accomplished. So there has to be a place in, in the organizational world for death, for failure, for accidents, for mistakes without making them fatal without feeling, well, therefore. So I think faith and mystery and uh, belief in what you're doing is required because the world just doesn't conform to what we have in mind. And uh, if, you, if you think you have control or if you want to claim victory, well, you're a fool. It's like raising children. You know, I always wondered how my kids would turn out. And I was very worried about that given the parents they had, me. <laughs> and then finally in their early 30s, I said, I'm tired of worrying about how they're going to turn out. They're both uh, good people. They're relatively drug-free. They're independent. I declared victory. They turned out fine. And then I could just enjoy them for a while. So it's it's something like that. That's the people who are looking for victory, looking for confidence, looking for evidence of their success, are squinting their eyes when their eyes should be open and realize that organizational life is intensely complicated. It's very political, and it's very accidental. So if you if you got where you wanted to be, then you have to thank God for that. You can't look in the mirror and say, good work. Now, you said something that really caught my attention, that you don't believe particularly in scale or speed. I mean, those are two measurements in business that are traditionally what we're looking for if we're being successful. I mean, let's just start with scale. I mean, yeah, of course, the, you know, the business has to influence 
lots of people, be replicable, scalable, et cetera, et cetera, if it's really going to make an impact. And it sounds like you're saying something different. Yeah. I think it's, that's, what's, that's where we're vulnerable. The idea that you have to take it to scale is if size matters. That destroys all that is local, all that is inventive, all that is unique, all that is surprising. Scale requires, requires replicability. We have to do the same thing over and over again. Now, if you're building a bridge, that's cool. If you're making a product, of course you want it to be consistent. But if you're running a business, if you're creating a business, if you're worried about uh, bringing something new into a marketplace or being agile or whatever the words of the moment are, uh, you've got to believe in the quality of things. And, and everybody has to replicate. I, I wrote a book on, on empowerment once and, and told the story of how a, a group redesigned their own office space. And in them doing it themselves, they created a space that was useful, less expensive, more aesthetic, and, uh, and made them feel better about the company. And, it, and that company looked at the space they designed and said, we're going to put this design everywhere to get the same result. And, of course, they didn't because they didn't realize it was the act of local creation that produced the culture and the outcome they were looking for. So I would argue localism and uniqueness and uh, invented here as a substitute for the notion that if we can't take it to scale, it has no value. If we can't do it quickly, most of the speed has become a value in and of itself. Well, maybe it's true in the uh, aspects of the miniaturization and technology world, but it's not true about culture, not true about things that matter. It's not true about, you know, building a business on a set of values. The people that we admire the most as values-driven businesses weren't in a hurry. So hurriedness in itself uh, has an effect, has a cost, and, and it's not good for the land, and it's not good for the community. It's not good for the people. It wears us out. So what is, why are we so tired? The jobs aren't that difficult. And I know they're not that difficult because we can do them. So this notion that you know, 24-7, on call, uh, is just a lot. There's a, it's a thin veneer of what matters in my mind. So, Peter, I'm listening to you, and it's just so contrary to what you hear about in the culture at large about success in business. I mean, just back to this idea of scale for a moment. I mean, I can't imagine talking to an investor and saying, you know, I've got this great idea, uh, scale's not important to me. And, I mean, the investor would just walk out of the room. Why should I invest in this? There's never going to be a big return on, on this particular business idea. So for the, the, this is part of the mythology, okay, uh, of the uh, money that a business needs to be successful. 4% came from investors. The rest came from revenue, came from loans, came from other places. And yet we've made the investor God. It's true, the investor could care less about your business. And uh, at some point, you've got to create a story about how they're going to make money. But I think a lot of people who aren't caught up with scale 
make a lot of money. Uh, and so the idea that it's you grow or die, I think, is a fiction. It's a, it's a, it's a modern fiction that's, in fact, killing us. And uh, the belief, you know, it's an argument against competition. <clears throat> uh, most companies are not interested in competition. They want to dominate. They want to be number one. Procter & Gamble won't enter a, a market unless it can dominate the market. Well, if you, that means you don't care about competition. You don't want competition. So much of the rhetoric around business these days uh, is up for question. It's up for grabs. Now, it's good for wealth creation, but for very few people. You know, we have a recovery. We have a world of uh, high, uh, you know, stock value, but it's impacting very few people. I mean, the, the wage inequality in the United States is as great as it's ever been, it's higher than the Great Depression back in the back in the you know, late twenties and early thirties. So if you step back a second and and don't look at it through the eye of the of the of the top few or the investor, you got to question what we're up to. But you know who will care for the common good is the question that most businesses aren't ready to deal with yet. And so I think this is what what's shifting. I think our consciousness is shifting. I think there's movements afoot. So if I'm running a business now, I better worry about what will give me the license to operate over the long term. And and uh, this is what you start caring about. That's why you have little movements, little glimmers of conscious capitalism, of social entrepreneurship, of the collective movement, where you have growing 40% of the, uh, the, the uh, co-op, you know, cooperative banks, okay, control more money than the top five Wall Street firms. So if you're interested in business, you got to start paying attention to these things. You have to start reading outside the business page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times uh, and, and The Economist. Those business pages are describing a way of thinking about businesses that may be won't work after a while. Well, I, I hope you're right about that. I mean, I, I think when I hear you ask a question like, who will care for the common good, and that businesses could be asking that question, I thought to myself, how many people even ask that question, let alone organizations? Who will care for the common good? I better care for my own good, or it's not. who's going to care for that? I know. Well, that's the conventional wisdom. You're giving voice to the dominant narrative, to the patriarchal narrative, to the historical narrative. And I don't think that's where uh, the world is occurring right now. I think we've reached the limits of privatization. You know, in the 17th century, the King of England privatized public land to pay off war debts, I think, which meant that the, the common people couldn't hunt or fish or farm on what were public lands. And so that began the privatization movement. It began the movement to the cities. And so we're seeing the end of that movement now, where everything we think can be privatized. And so I just don't think that's useful or true anymore. 
you know, people run for office against government. Well, government cares for the common good. They're against public education. And education was started to create equ an equitable society, a just society. Well, now educate, public education has been highly privatized. Uh, universities now are doing virtual classes because they're cost-efficient and high-leverage scaled enterprises. So all this is true, but I think it's more fragile than we realize. So we need, there are voices in the world and thoughtful people running companies that are having these conversations. You just don't going to read about it. They don't listen to, to you, Tammy, and, and, and the sounds true. If they don't subscribe to you, they'll never hear about these things. Okay, now I want to talk a little bit more about speed, because you mentioned that as well as being problematic. And I was reading your book, The Answer to How is Yes, which in and of itself is just a great bumper sticker. I think a, a, a great book title, really worth pondering. The answer to how is yes. And in it, you talk about what it takes, what does it take to pursue what matters in our life? And you bring forward three ideas, and, and one we've already briefly touched on, which is the importance of reawakening our idealism. And another point you make is that we have to have a willingness to choose depth over speed. And when I read that, it really impacted me, choosing depth over speed. And I thought of how much of the time I'm uh, buzzing around, <laughs> choosing speed over depth. So how is it that you put those two things together, choosing depth over speed? I was in California, and uh, somebody in a workshop said, speed is God and time is the devil. And I thought, <clears throat> he's right. We're in Silicon Valley. That's the world. And I, so I began looking. You know, speed is also related to convenience. And so all this great technology we have is really not uh, that powerful. It's just easy. It's convenient. And so anything I do in a hurry is always an argument against intimacy. It's an argument against the aesthetic aspect of life. It's an argument against art. It's an argument against uniqueness. It's an argument against democracy. And so anything that's used as an argument against the quality of life or the quality of aliveness is worth questioning. And so I, I begin to so what's the alternative to speed? Suppose I wasn't in a hurry, what would that open up for me? And opens up this, this depth, intimacy, uh, the texture of life, the nuance of experience. It opens up the world of the feminine. Feminine power isn't based on speed and scale and, and cost. It's based on the quality of, of experience. It's based on the quality of relationships. So if you believe in speed, you sacrifice relatedness. You substitute contact for connection. And uh, it's just a way of thinking. And the usefulness of that thinking is it, it forces you to say, so what matters to me now? What matters to us? What's the meaning of things? The love of 
cost control is the absence of things that have meaning. They're just cheaper. And I see that as being so costly to the land and the culture and raising a child. And, and uh, I don't see that that's sustainable. In a business, most people running these businesses, <clears throat> they're advocating scale and speed and cost only in the job for about two or three years and then they move on. So mobility is a huge obstacle to the quality of life or, or a sense of a life. So who will be accountable for scale and speed and cost? The answer is nobody. Okay, Peter, but as you're talking, I mean, I'm very touched by it in, in that I recognize how much relatedness I've been willing to give up because I'm trying to get stuff done. And so I'm running around, you know, all speedy, trying to get a bunch of stuff done. How do you help people break the speed habit, if you will, in business when there's so much to get done? Well, you need, you need a Sabbath. See, the Sabbath in Pharaoh's world in the Old Testament was created as a political stance against restless productivity. So in Pharaoh's Egypt, no matter how much you produce, there wasn't enough. In today's culture, no matter how much you have, it's not enough. So you say, where do I find a means in, within which I can question? And that one is I can't do it alone, so I need, I need to be in conversation with other people who are wondering about, about the pace of their life and the assumptions they're making. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways of doing it, but mostly it's a, it's a way of thinking that requires a shift. Now, it's being forced on us. You know, the middle class is pretty much disappearing in this culture. Well, what are we going to do about that? Uh, you know, couples have to both work, they think, in order to afford the life that they want. We ask ourselves, well, will your children be better off than you are? And I say, yes, they'll just be poorer. <laughs> they're going to have a smaller house, but they're going to be healthier. So there's all kinds of movements afoot. There's a slow food movement. There's 35 uh, community gardens in Cincinnati, which take time to plant and raise a garden. There's a cooperative movement where I can uh, support farms that exist in the city or 20 miles from the city. So you pick what you care about. You care about kids. You care about the economy. You care about people. Uh, you care about poverty. Any of those things you care about, you can't get there with scale and speed and low-cost operation. You just can't get there. And, and we know that. And, and so it's a rethinking of the, what would a non-consumerist capitalism look like. And there's plenty of room for small businesses and local enterprises and private ownership and, and enough wealth to go around. And so there's a whole shift in thinking about our economy. And that's where, I, that's where we're headed. Because, uh, you know, it's a jobless recovery. And, and, and uh, all around you, people are aware of, of how rich we are and how, how much struggle there is. You know, and, and, and as a nation, the United States is not that successful in what it, it spends its money on. You know, it spends 40% more than any other country in the world on health care, and it ranks about 25th. 
on any measure of health, uh, on any measure of safety and well-being, we don't do well. Uh, on, on, so, on any measure of the environment, of the land, any measure of our how our children are doing. So, all this is, is some point's got to be questioned, and the speed, and the scale, and the cost mentality makes it impossible to create an alternative future. Now, I, I say this with sudden certainty. I have no idea what I'm talking. Well, we, I take that with a grain of salt, Peter. That, that, that's underst- that's understood I mean, I, I by mean, our listeners. It, good. Well, I mean, I believe absolutely what I'm saying. I just don't know if it's accurate, but this is, your, this is kind of a, how, how I try to make sense of this world. Now, I'm curious about something, Peter, because in addition to writing your books and speaking, you've also been part of organizational life, part of businesses, a consulting company. And I'm curious to know, of the ideas you've written about, what have been the most important, and forgive me here, I'm going to say effective, ideas that you've actually incorporated into the organizations that you've been a part of? Well, most of my consulting is looking for good clients. And so you, everything I write about is something I've seen. And so if I write about the redistribution of power or wealth, or if I write about staff group, groups that are consultative and not, uh, you know, judges and audits and watching other people, it's working somewhere. And I've been witness to the revival of companies like Rich Tierlink and Harley Davidson. They almost went, they were three months from bankruptcy. And what Rich did was to say, we're going to treat the people doing the work and making these motorcycles like they know what they're doing. So he started a huge campaign of developing people, creating circles, creating choices, creating conversations. So the idea of of, uh, conversations among people doing the work about how to make things better is just a powerful idea that's worked everywhere. Uh, And so all these ideas come from witnessing what works. And and small groups of people talking about the future, uh, companies that give choice close to the margin and the edge, these are the places that are really successful. And... uh, they go against the dominant narrative. They go against the dominant notion. And, and so I, to me, that's what's effective. Changing the conversation to change a culture, that works. Getting large groups of people together to talk about the future they want to produce together, where the boss is a host instead of a hero. I mean, all these things are working in the world. They're just not uh, acknowledged. They'd never get credit because they go against the patriarchy. They go against the the dominant belief embodied by the people reporting on business as to what business is really about. And uh, it's true in the the national stage. You know, Obama Obama is reluctant to attack Syria. And when he decides to consult with Congress on it, he's considered like he's waffling in the news media. And then when Russia comes along and says, wait a second, you don't have to attack. I think we can reach an agreement. They play a good third-party role. They show it as a sign of presidential weakness that he allowed another country, not so friendly to us perhaps, to be decisive in bringing peace and avoiding war in the world. So that 
interpretation of events is what we're dealing with. And uh, there needs to be an alternative narrative, alternative storytelling, where flexibility and a love of peace and a care for the common good and an honoring of unions and their ability to protect the rights of workers, where those things are valued instead of viewed with disdain and uh, anti, you know, whatever. Now, now, you said something interesting where the boss or the leader is a host instead of a hero. Yeah. What, what do you mean by a host? What, what am I doing? Well, it's as... a convening function. Okay. A host is a convenience. Says the job of the boss is to get peers to engage each other and decide what, the, what they want to do. The job of the boss is not to be a role model, not to be a parent, not to be a visionary, not to be uh, dynamic and charismatic, not to carry the hopes and dreams of the institution on her shoulders and embody, you know, all that kind of longing for, a, for the parent we never had. It's foolishness. It's, it's, it's an escape from freedom. It's an escape from accountability. Bosses, what I really want from a boss, I want you to know the business really well. And should we be in this business or that business? And what do we need to do to sustain and survive? And, uh, but in terms of their behavior, who they are as people, just be a good human being and bring us together, convene us into a room. And I've been part of this again and again and again. And uh, I've seen budget conversations, or most of the conversation wasn't, okay, here's the budget, are you on board or not? It's a conversation where you say, here's the budget, what doubts do you have? What's going to be required of us? What agreements do we need with each other for us to fulfill? the promises we're making to the business. So that that's a language shift in, in all transformation, all progress is a shift in language. Uh, when you name your business sounds true, that's what you knew. That, that, that if we can shift our thinking. And so the language shift from, okay, are you behind us? Are you for us or against us? Are you a team player? Are you a can-do kind of person? You hear all this baby talk all over the place. And you realize that doesn't produce outcomes. It doesn't produce, people produce results despite that kind of uh, failure, not an option language. And the language that really produces results is what do we want from each other? What do peers need to do to create a future that they want? And then, then you can design systems around that. You design comp systems that are transparent. Everybody should know pretty much what the, what the pay scale is at every grade. And everybody should know how we're doing as a business. Whereas most places still are highly secretive about things that matter. So would you be recommending then that everybody's salary is just posted someplace, something like that? Well, salary ranges. You don't have to... Most people aren't mature enough to realize somebody makes more money than them who they think is a jerk, me included. But, yeah, make it much more trend And treat it as, as it's relatively unimportant. You know, you, you, salaries are determined by the marketplace. So let people know, here's what the market's paying, here's where here's this great... But especially at the top, you know, and now at the very top, it's all in a public company, it's all transparent, and people survive. 
any public company know exactly what the top what the officers made, and life goes on. So why not just do that overall and take the take the uh, false oxygen out of the compensation conversation? I'm on the board of a public company, and they they asked me to be uh, chair of the compensation committee of the board, and I said that's fine as long as you realize that I consider compensation relatively unimportant and not very decisive in terms of people's performance or their thoughts or feelings about the world. And they said, fine. So that's the, so a lot of these things that we think motivate people are just kind of leasehold arrangements. We think we can rent people, we can buy people, we can purchase people, we can retain them with money, retention bonuses for a while. And all that is just uh, simplifying mythology. It's just a way of thinking that treats people as if they're commodities. And if when we go to work, we're being purchased or rented. And uh, my whole work has been to create an alternative to that kind of thinking and to try to bring humanity back into our institutional lives. So if it's not pay that motivates people, what do you think motivates people? Relationship, doing something that having uh, control over what they do, and feeling uh, connected to the people they're doing it with. Period. And as, you know, some people are lucky in the private sector; they have a product or something they believe in. But most of the time, they don't. Uh, you know, but what they do believe in is people around them, and they they feel like they're they're producing something producers, the creators. There's something more than, quote, labor. And that's why people stay. You know, everybody's being recruited by somebody, and they sometimes they answer the phone, sometimes they don't. Well, when they don't answer the phone and they, they stay, well, it means they care about the people around them, and they feel like they're, they have a voice. They're, they're listen to it. They're listening as an action step is way underrated. And most of the great executives and CEOs and top leaders I've seen, their real skill, in addition to knowing the business, was they paid attention. They just paid attention. And that is so healing and so rare in the speed culture and scale culture and cost culture we live in that it's uh, it's astoundingly powerful. Uh, A good example is Mulally, who runs Ford. He used to run a big part of Boeing. And Ford had the wisdom to bring him in. And that's who he is. This guy pays attention. And he was always uh, working things out with the union. He's always looking to reach agreement. A, a, a huge realist, but reaching agreement on things. And it's interesting to me, after he's there for a while, Ford is the only company that didn't need a government bailout. And I think those things are deeply related. That his way, his form of uh, listening, empathetic, collegial kind of leadership uh, just made a huge difference in that huge culture. And uh, people like that are, are miracles. They're amazing. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Produced by Sounds True. 
we welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Peter, one thing you said that I, I didn't really understand that I'd love to have you clarify. You said that the language that we use makes all the difference in creating change. So tell me what you mean by that. Well, if I say, okay, here's a vision. The top management has created a vision and value statement. And now we're going to enroll people in that vision and those values. We're going to cascade this down to the organization. That treats everybody else as a consumer of top management's of beliefs. And so it activates an enrollment process and you get people on board and every manager's got a deck or you know something to communicate. So that is a deeply patriarchal, top-down, colonial way of achieving change or creating a future. So that language of enrollment and rolling out and cascading in, in the top so suppose we said that top management has, is committed to a set of values and we want to engage people in a conversation about what those values mean for them and what they can construct around that. And so we're going to have an engagement process of inviting. So the difference between enrollment and invitation is night and day. And so you, it creates a very different culture. Mars is a culture of engagement. They have a strong set of values, and it's not like we're going to vote on values. One of their values is freedom, which I find miraculous. Another one is engagement. Another one is mutuality. But they don't cascade it down. They don't market it and sell it and message it down to the organization. They say, this is something all of us over time are going to be engaged in discovering what does it mean? What does mutuality mean to us? What form can you give that wherever you're living and working? Which is such a different philosophy because most other places I go, the values are just, uh, you know, it's a it's it's way of enforcing them. A company once called me and said, and said, you know, you wrote a book on empowerment, so we, we're all for that. And one of our values is empowerment. So can you design a performance appraisal form for us to measure how empowered people are? Can we do a survey to see how empowered people are? Can we create a compensation system that's aligned with our values of them? So that kind of thinking tells me it's a colonial culture. It's a culture of monarchy and the top knows and the bottom doesn't. And that dominates the American culture. And I don't think that works. this company is very successful, made a lot of money, but nobody, nobody's, it's a tough environment to work in. Now, you talked about this business who had freedom as one of their values. And yeah. in reading about your work, I came across this statement that I wanted to have you comment on, which is, you can claim your freedom and make a living at the same time. 
And I thought, well, that's probably pretty controversial. Probably a lot of people have the experience that I can't claim my freedom and make a living at the same time. So talk to me a little bit about what you mean by claiming one's freedom. I claim my freedom when I choose to be accountable. Every time I blame my boss or my boss's boss or the culture or the devil made me do it, every time I explain who I am by my story about my history, I'm escaping from freedom. People measure personality. They say, what's genetic? What came from your parents? What was about the culture? What about your peers? What about your birth order? They have every explanation for who I am, except the fact I'm also a free will. And this I learned so well or long ago from Peter Kestenbaum, who's an existential philosopher. And the first time I heard him give a talk, he used the word freedom, and I just about fell over because I didn't even, it wasn't even my vocabulary. And, uh, and so to be free is to claim agency, to say, I am creating the world I'm a participant in. Now, I'm not creating all of it. But let me stop blaming the world as an excuse for what I'm up to. So if you claim your freedom, it means you're willing to be accountable for the well-being of this institution, the whole thing. And that's of such value that any company would be a fool not to want you working for them. And, and, and we think they want dependency. They think they, they want compliance. And we have seeming evidence. I don't see that. I see the people who are really most valued by their organizations are people that are willing to step up and say, well, I'm, my, my word is gold. We can do this. And so that to me is what freedom's about. So that's the, that's, you know, that's why I, I so admire this company because they're willing to use the word freedom, which implies a promise of partnership, connection relational equity and uh, it's just a very you know, people confuse freedom with license and I say well, I, I, I can't have my freedom around here because they keep saying no to my suggestions That's get off it they're not your mother and maybe your suggestions aren't that great <laughs> so, you know and, and most a lot of people buy the conventional version of what it means to be an employee and they want great parents. I want my mommy. I want my mentor. I want my water bottle to have a nipple on it. You know, it's all that language, all that conversation. I need my coach. Uh, I just feel as a symptom of our dependency, a symptom of our willingness to yield sovereignty. Everything I've written over these years has been towards the instinct of partnership, the instinct of interdependence, the instinct of connection. Uh, it just seems that that's what works in the world. But you never get it named that way. Okay, so I, wanna, you, I just you know. want to try to make this really comprehensible. So somebody's listening... <laughs> Yeah, just somebody's listening, and they're like, you know, I as don't... opposed to what I've been talking about. No, bear with me, and I don't feel free in my workplace. It's not just that I don't have license or this and that, but you know, there's so many things about my work that 
are not the way I wish that they were. I don't feel free. And so how am I going to incorporate what Peter's saying here? I guess I could, I mean, I could quit. That's my freedom. My freedom is that I'm choosing to stay in this place where I don't feel free. Quit, quitting is never an act of freedom. It doesn't mean it's not a good idea, but that's not freedom. Freedom is to, is to look at your workplace and ask the question, so what can I control? Where do I have agency? What can, where do I have a voice? What can I? Because, of course, life doesn't, just, it doesn't give you a platter. It doesn't give you what you want. It, it doesn't work that way. Life is complicated. It's brutal. It's, uh, it's harsh. It's accidental. It's unintended consequences. So it's how you deal with what life presents you is an expression of your freedom. It's not the fact you got what you wanted. And, and, and you can tell people that are experiencing their freedom because they talk about what they can control. And they don't waste a lot of time complaining and waiting for the transformation of the people around them. Uh, and if, if that's true in the community world. It's true in businesses. It's, it's true in churches. So that scene... You know, it was true when this country was founded. You know, democracy was a pretty new idea. Self-governance was a pretty radical thought. And so it's along, it's in, in, in those themes that the world is transformed. And uh, all it takes is an instance for somebody to decide they're going to focus on what they can control and let what they can control, maybe it's one person, maybe it's one project, or maybe it's one aspect of a project. And they say, how can I bring my gifts to that aspect of the world that I can control? And that's what freedom is about. Okay, so with Sounds True, Peter, you created an audio learning program called The Right Use of Power, How Stewardship <laughs> Replaces Leadership. What was, that, what was that giggle about the title? Yes, you have such a good memory, you're dangerous. Okay. And so I, I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to know when you use this term stewardship and the vision mm -hmm. that you have for stewardship to replace leadership, what you mean by that? Stewardship is to care for the future, to care for the next generation. It's an antidote to speed and this quarter and uh, cost as the measures of value. Uh, stewardship is to bring a spiritual dimension. That word is borrowed from the faith community. And it says, I'm here for a larger purpose than this moment. I'm here to redistribute wealth, to democratize wealth, to give choice. That's what develops the next generation. Uh, right now we raise our children, and, and they're useless. They have nothing to do. We call them teenagers. Uh, stewardship says that, that uh, the future gets created or good is brought into the world or performance increases when people feel they have control over something, when they have choice over something. Uh, and so I like the notion of stewardship because of its future orientation, its spiritual dimension. And it means I'm holding something. I'm holding the earth we talk about stewardship of the earth. I'm holding this institution. 
for the long run, for the sake of the unborn child, for the sake of the next generation. And if you think that way, then it changes your actions. And you, you aren't so obsessed with speed and cost and scale. You're obsessed with the quality of things. You're obsessed with the sense of relatedness that people have. You say, we have to make money, and I'm all for making money, but we're doing it for a purpose larger than just shareholder return. And so that all, all of that's caught in, the, in the, the word stewardship. Leadership sounds to me, even though the word is held on for so long, as if you need a follower for there to be a leader. And that's a, that's a funny arrangement of the world. Uh, leadership, to me, in its best sense, is to initiate an alternative future. That's an act of initiation. It's an act of creativity. It's an act of leadership. Uh, the Thomas More Business School in Minneapolis. And they have a statue out front of a man with a, with a chisel in his left hand right against his knee where his body is not yet formed. And his right hand is a huge hammer that he's about to strike, and he's blindfolded. And I love that image of entrepreneurship. It says that this person is creating something out of some inner sense by looking inward. And he's created of his own choice. And so that's what stewardship, you know, the best leadership is of that quality. The typical leadership is if leadership is a competency model, as if it's a set of skills and the and a, and a role modeling kind of thing. And I just, I think that's a, that breeds dependency. It's not good for democracy. It's not good for a customer. It's not good for an employee. But that's the dominant belief is, the dominant eco, economic model is based around deficiencies and scarcity, that we don't have enough, that there's not enough to go around, that we need to compete. We take our children in the first grade, we put the normal curve over their head and tell them, okay, you've enjoyed learning for its own sake up to now, but those days are gone. Now we only have so many A's, so many B's, so many D's, and so many F's in this class. Go for it. And so this belief in competition as being the motivator are useful. All of that's wrapped up in the dark side of leadership in my mind. Now, Peter, you've brought up democracy a couple of times, and I know in your work you talk about citizenship, and it seems that you make a a pretty important link between what happens in our business lives and what happens in our political lives, that they're connected in some way, what's happening inside businesses and the kinds of citizens that people become in the world in terms of how they relate to the collective. So what's that link in your mind? I mean, can't we be one way in business and another way in terms of how we relate to our political system? Well, I wish we could. I I just think, you know, this notion, how do I balance my personal life and my work life? It's a a foolish question because there's no, these are all complicated things and they're integrated things. I worry, you know, this culture is, is corporate dominant now, the dominant belief system in the culture is the business perspective. And the business perspective is what we've been talking about, which is scale and speed and cost and efficiency and the commodification, the replicability of life and people and no person's indispensable. 
I worry that if I live in that culture all day and that belief system dominates how we think about government and churches and public education and health care, that we're losing our sense of citizenship. To be a citizen is the feeling I can produce the future. I can co-create the future. And I feel we lose that by not only the way we are in business, but the fact that the business perspective so dominates every sector of our lives. And when that happens, we reduce democracy to a vote. And we have a low percentage of people voting. And uh, uh, we want to automate the public, the civic space. And so now you've got technology to connect me with my neighbors. Technology connects me with my government. We've got schools now being privatized and scale is taken over. So you have the virtual charter school. Uh, all of this frightens me in terms of uh, being a more totalitarian culture. The last election in, in 2012, we were attracted to the Republican candidate mostly because he was a good businessman. And it just struck me, forget about politics, that we so value the business acumen, that we want that as the president, as if the president of the United States was a senior management, was a senior executive, and that's what we most value. And none of that is good for the messiness of democracy, for the messiness of a populism or a sense of caring for the whole or doing something about the 40 million people that live in poverty in this country. And, and these are big forces. And so if you care about the democracy, you, you start thinking about these kinds of things. And you don't get trapped into a discussion of left or right or conservative, liberal or Democrat, Republican. Those conversations don't take us anywhere. You start saying, oh, in the world I'm in, how do I deepen my own participation in it? How do I treat myself as if I'm a player, an agent, and make up our own mind about what we want to do in a neighborhood, make up our own mind about what we want to do in this division of this department? Most of the miracles I've seen in organizational life with somebody in the middle or upper middle who'd given up on their ambition and said, the hell with it, I'm going to do something that makes sense here. And when they did that, they made a lot of money for that company. And, and uh, that's why you don't have to choose between making money and doing, choosing freedom or doing something that matters. Because the, the, if what you do works, the world will pretty much embrace it. They'll at least tolerate it. They may not love you for it, but you, you're not going to get destroyed for doing something that works, even though what you're doing goes against the dominant culture. And I, I've seen that a thousand times. Okay, Peter, I just have a couple final questions for you. Here's the first one. How are we doing? We're doing, how are we doing? We're going to have it, we're checking in. Oh, I love talking to you. I love talking to you because you turn everything <laughs> upside down. And okay. it, it just makes me so happy, which brings me to this question I wanted to ask you, which is, well, let's find out how do you think we're doing? How are you feeling? I love, I, I, I so admire you for the, uh, the thoughtfulness and the preparation you've done for our conversation, I just, I'm just uh, totally grateful for you, Ted. Oh, I that's just sweet. Love it. Thank you. 
Okay, so this really got me, this quote, where you quote Carl Jung, and you say, disobedience is the first step towards consciousness. And and I wanted I to hear you unpack that a little bit, because I thought that's one of those quotes that I'm going to put on a post-it on my computer screen for a while. Uh, he also said that a broken heart is, is, the, is the opens you to compassion. And so when I see people that aren't very compassionate, I think, well, their heart hasn't been broken yet. And so uh, if I see people that don't seem conscious, it means that they're still being a good child. So uh, disobedience is to stay, stay in a fundamental way. I'm not the child you had in mind. At some point in your life, you look at your parents. Not, you don't say this to them, but in your mind you say, I'm not the child, I'm not the son, I'm not the daughter you had in mind. At that moment, your adult life begins. The argument, what, what blinds my consciousness is my longing and willingness to live into the dominant narrative, the dominant culture, the dominant beliefs, the taken for granted ways of believing. And so in the early years, at some point, you just want to be a good son. You want to get a good grade. Mrs. Shea told me in the third grade that Peter's a very dependable boy. And I thought, all right, I got it, got the message, here I go. And so our wish to be good, dependable, predictable, reliable, uh, keeps us unconscious. It, it doesn't allow us to see the real suffering entailed in being a human being. Peter Kestenbaum, my friend and hero, he says, we're all wounded at the moment of birth. And so the act of disobedience is reclaiming some autonomy, some freedom, some self, something that I have willed or chosen out of my own handicraft. And that's what makes me conscious. That's what makes me experience the world as alive and mysterious and wounded and joyful and possible and tearful. It allows me to realize that death is inevitable. Uh, institutional life has no space for failure. It has no space for death. It says grow or die. And I think somebody, says, somebody should say, well, why not die? You know, <laughs> most of the companies we know about are gone anyhow. People say, you know, I complain about my age, and they said it's better than the alternative. And I say, how do you know? <laughs> Maybe... And so consciousness to me is creating space for this mystery, for this texture, for the aesthetic sense of life, for the tragic sense of life, for the joyful sense of life. And it always comes when we win against something we thought was true, when, when we took a stand that made sense to us in the face of the dominant beliefs, in the face of the coach's advice. And so that's my... That's why that quote from Young meant so much to me. It, it allowed me not to feel bad about my disobedience. Yeah. Uh, the way I've let people down, the way I've hurt the world, I have. I, I, and I, I feel it. And the older I get, the more I feel it. And yet I, I know those are also an element of a lived life. I did live 
this life. And uh, some of it didn't turn out well, but so be it. And uh, that's what always frightened me the most, is that I had this burden of a life. And And I asked myself, well, did you honor that responsibility? That God gave us a life, and did I do something with that? other than be a good boy and, and do the right thing. And, and the, my most of my woundedness comes from my uh, compulsive desire to be responsible. Most of the harm I've caused in the world is I thought I was being so responsible and it was unlivable, it was unholdable, uncontainable for me. So that disobedience is not that you, you celebrate it, but you have to create space for it. That's why dissent is so important. Institutions need to create space for people to have doubts, for people to fail and to be wrong. Otherwise, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a prison. And, and a lot of companies I've consulted with say, "Well, you're with us or against us." And uh, I know that that's not good for business. That's not good for the human soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter, you spend. Uh, quite a bit of emphasis in your work on asking questions and pointing Mm -hmm. people towards what kinds of questions are really useful to ask. And here, as our conversation comes to a close, I'd love for you to share with our listeners what you think some of the most important questions are to ask in organizational life and about our relationship to organizational life. Well, just the, just the idea that the questions are more powerful than the answers in and of itself uh, is worth underlining. So the task of leadership is to figure out what's the question now that we should be talking about. Uh, the most powerful questions to me, uh, the most powerful, uh, is the question. What's the question if you had an answer to would set you free? And so that's been an organizing question for my life. For some reason, I've just valued freedom almost excessively. So that's a very vague philosophical question. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. What's the question that if you had an answer to it, it would set you free? So do you have a question for you that if you had an answer to it, it would set you free? For me, the question would be, what's the point? What's the point? That's what's plagued me most of my life. Is this. So what's worth doing? What what matters? What's the point? And uh, it's been a useful question for me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the fall or late autumn of my life, and uh, it still haunts me. So it's powerful in that way. See, the question, a good question works on you. It's like a parasite that worms its way under your skin and you can't get rid of it. And when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's right there. So for me, what's the point? Uh, At some stages, I had questions like, what's the courage that's required of you now? Uh, in, In an organizational context of, best question I know is what's the crossroads we're at at this stage of the game? Because if we can talk about crossroads, we treat ourselves as choiceful human beings. 
another question I make a living off of is asking people, what's the gift you've just received from each other at this moment? So to bring the legitimacy to a discussion of our gifts as opposed to our weaknesses and our problems and deficiencies to me is life-changing question. Uh, another great question is, what's the resentment you hold that nobody knows about? I mean, mm. What do you do with that? Mm. Race for the door, you know. Mm. And, uh, and so these questions are very useful inside organizations to keep people grounded against the mythology that everything's going fine, that life is headed for the North Star. So most businesses that can't confront difficult questions, the reality of their lives, they're not going to do well because the world will know it. You can feel it when you walk into a store and the people don't care. You know it right away. When you when you get a product that promised no more than it delivered, you know it right away. So even in a, in a communal sense or an organizational sense, the questions of crossroads, perhaps the questions of purpose and what's the point, questions of what doubts do we have, questions of what did I say yes to that no longer no longer applies. Questions of what are the gifts we came here to deliver. Questions of what's the possibility we are organized to live into or declare to the world. Uh, these are just, they do something to us when we consider them together. And you say, well, what, what's the answer? And then you laugh. So great questions keep working on us it doesn't matter what you say at the moment. They 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 work on us, and the and the questions open space for another possibility. They open space for an alternative future, and that may be the point. Okay, Peter, I'm going to bring our conversation to a close here with this final question for you. So, Peter, you said that you're in the autumn, late autumn of your life. As I was talking to you before this interview, you shared with me that you're 74 and a half now. And what I'm curious about is to know what, if anything, you want to accomplish still. Is there anything that you, when you look ahead, you think, I really want to get this done? I would like to experience a life of reflection. I would like to be in a world where uh, thinking is my focus. And I've asked myself, so where do I want to get done? And I kept saying nothing. And then I realized I meant it. That the thought of for the next 10 years or so, uh, having to, to do nothing. I want to be domesticated. I want to, you know, Ulysses is a great metaphor for me. And at the end, he comes back after this long trip, rescues his wife, kills all the suitors with his son and he gets ready to go back to war. And so the night before his ship is about to take off, he has a dream and the dream tells him to take his oar and go inland and plant it in the earth and that becomes his future. So that's what I... I don't know if I want to accomplish it, but the longing I have is to give myself space and time to reflect, to think, to dwell in the idea, in the realm of ideas, to take advantage of the network of relationships I've built up all for all these years, and to essentially um, be unproductive and not 
worry so much about being useful and productive and uh, somebody. So uh, that's appealing to me. Other than that, there's nothing I want to accomplish. Other than, you know, uh, kind of rest in peace, really. Well, Peter, I haven't talked to you in quite a while. I think it's been a decade or so, and so I just want to say how grateful I am to have had this chance to hear your gravelly voice and your disobedient ideas, and I feel grateful. I'm really glad you're in the world and that you've been engaging your imagination in the way that you have. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. You're, you're a jewel. You're just a jewel. Thank you. With Sounds True, Peter Block has released the audio learning program, The Right Use of Power, How Stewardship Replaces Leadership. Soundstreet.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.